0: Verse thirty eight B of chapter eighteen, and Pilate went out again to the Jews. The downward spiral, notice the left side of the parabola on your outline, advances by change frame, scene shift. Back outside the praetorium. All this peasant deserves is a scoffing dismissal. I found I find no guilt in him. I say scoffing dismissal. Because Pilate is a scoffer. This man is a harmless fanatic, brain-touched by the searing Palestinian sun, obsessed with Jewish apocalyptic delusions of grandeur. I find no guilt in him. Scoffing Pilate scoffs at Jesus. He scoffs at the Jews. He has trumped them already this night. Verse 31, he aims to trump them again. Pragmatic pilot, expedient pilot, politically expedient, pragmatic pilot knows, Pontius Pilate knows, no Roman court will convict Jesus of his ravings. He ventures his trump card. I will release him. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? The pragmatist gambles. Expediency always rolls the dice, always. I find in him no guilt. I will release him to you, your king. But the pragmatist has miscalculated the force of evil. Evil always has a way, an alternative, a way completely unforeseen and unexpected. Not this man. The mob is ready. As if they intentionally laid the pragmatic trap for the pragmatist as if they knew expedient, dice-rolling Pilate would do exactly what his unprincipled pragmatism does. Apparently, trumping Pilate is poised to be trumped. Not this man, but Barabbas. Did you notice? Not this no-name, but the fondly named Barabbas. No, Pilate, not this malefactor, whom we will not even recognize by name, not him, but the man with a name, the na- man with a name which means son of the father, Bar Abbas, that is the name we revere. That is the man with whom we identify. The name of the thief, the robber, the murderer. Give us Barabbas. And Pilate, Pilate has been checked and counterchecked. He has been stalemated, blindsided by principles. Not this man outmaneuvered by dedicated lovers of evil. Not this no-name. Give us our man. Give us Barabbas. And the true son of the father, the eschatological son of the eschatological father, the eschatological Barabbas, he is rejected. There is Johannine Irony. Pilate pronounces Jesus innocent, not guilty, no criminal, harmless, but the one with no guilt is despised and rejected, rejected for the one truly guilty. The innocent stands as guilty, death guilty, the guilty poised to go free. Pilate is trapped, trapped by his pragmatism, trapped by his scoffing contempt of the kingdom, Christ declared to him, trapped by a mob, ready to checkmate his every expedient move. Pilate, there is only one way out of this downward spiral, this stalemate, this entrapment. Pilate, throw away your expediency. Pilate, embrace the man with the name Jesus as innocent, innocent sufferer. Pilate. Hand over your power politics, your, uh, your puny Roman kingdom, and acknowledge Jesus as the eschatological king. Pilate, defend the name above every name, and become yourself in and through this eschatological son of the Father. Pilate, become a bar Abbas. Become a bar Abbas in Jesus Christ who cries out, Abba, Father. But Pilate goes back inside, one last ace in the hole, one last trump card up his sleeve. Back inside goes expedient, pragmatic, political Pilate, and Pilate orders Jesus scourged. This fourth scene, 19, 1 to 3, marks the midpoint in our parabola. It is the trough of our downward and upward spiral. Downward to scourging, upward to crucifixion. This midpoint is also the intersection in the drama of Jesus' trials. With Christ's mock coronation, we have reached the point of transition in the trial narrative. The transition to scourging, is another gamble on Pilate's part. He is addicted to pragmatism. He cannot think in other than political terms, terms of expediency. It is always so for the maneuverers, the political sharpies, the unprincipled pragmatic advocates of go along to get along. Even violence, cruel violence, becomes expedient. The scene shift implicit in 19 verse 1 is explicit in 19 verse 4. Jesus is the butt of mockery and scourging inside the praetorium. The center of the narrative spiral, namely the scourging, is parallel to its counterpart at the top of the parabola. Beyond 1916 is the nailing and royal enthronement of Jesus in 19 verses 17 to 22. In other words, the scourging scene is mirrored. It is mirrored in the crucifixion scene. Notice that contrary to ordinary procedure, Pilate scourges Jesus before he is sentenced. Ordinarily, scourging followed formal sentencing. So why? Why does Pilate reverse the order? Notice verse 4. I find no guilt in him. A repeat of 1838. Pilate does not want to press sentence on a person he regards as not guilty. So he scourges him first. And he does this, rolling the dice one last time. Pilate's ultimate gamble is this in this cat and mouse game with the Jews is to make Jesus a part of a burlesque Humiliation. If he can succeed in lampooning Jesus, he is betting the mob will react with pity. They will feel sorry for their cartoon king. So he has him crowned. He has him robed. He has him hailed and saluted. And then he presents him to the mob as a tragic buffoon. Surely, thinks Pilate, they will see he is no threat. He is a comic figure. And they will relent, surely, Pilate wagers. Scourging itself was a brutal experience. The victim was flogged with a lash. He was flogged with a lash into which were embedded sharp pieces of metal or fragments of bone. Thus, every lash of the whip bit deep into the skin and surrounding tissue, cutting, slicing, ripping, tearing skin and muscle and blood vessels into a pulp, a bleeding, oozing, hemorrhaging pulp. The purpose was to traumatize the victim, so weakening him that his life would end more swiftly on the cross. But Jesus endures. He endures a mock coronation as well as the brutal scourging. He is crowned with thorns, not thorns from rose bushes of the northwest littoral, but large, sharp thorn spikes pushed down upon his skull, piercing, piercing to the very bone of his head. He is robed in royal purple, the gown of a king, a pathetic monarch. He is hailed Caesar of the Jews. He is saluted regal lord of peasants and slaves. This farce, this brutal farce, ends with his presentation, his royal presentation to his Jewish subjects. Pilate gambles that the farcical. The derisive tragedy will swell the clemency, swell the tender-heartedness for this burlesque, comic, buffoon figure. But Pilate miscalculates once more. The presentation of the bloody, beaten, humiliated Jesus only inflames the bloodlust of the mob like vicious piranhas The Jewish mob is only incited by the tragic mock figure of their king. Crucify him! Crucify him! And in this mockery, this burlesque, the hour of Jesus' glory advances. His bloodied back and flesh, his pierced and wounded head, his royal garb, his battered, beaten face and ridiculed person. The centerpiece of the trough of the parabola is his glory, his glorious humiliation. The counterfeit, the counterpart of the midpoint of the parabola, his being nailed to the cross, hands and feet pierced and bloodied with spikes, the mirror, the very mirror of his scourging, Christ's crucifixion is yet another royal enthronement, another royal presentation. The cursed tree becomes the glorious throne of Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Lifted up between earth and heaven, this royal king of the otherworldly kingdom embraces the degradation, the dehumanization, the criminalization the accusation, the shame, the scandal of crucifixion. Pro nobis, for you, for me. Pro nobis, for us. He embraces the shame for us. He embraces the scourging, the nailing, the piercing, the tearing, the beating, the mockery pro nobis. Ours is the shame. He glories in it. He takes it. Ours is the humiliation. He glories in it. He is pierced through with it. Ours is the degradation. He glories in it. He is robed with it. Ours is the travesty. He glories in it. He is buffeted and torn by it. Could this comic farce include you? No, not me. I am too important. I am too famous. I am too established. I am too powerful, I am too successful, I am too comfortable, I am too political, I am too ambitious. No, not this burlesque king in shame for me. No, not for me. If you cannot identify with this one who bears your eschatological shame, you will be shamed eschatologically. If you cannot identify with this one who bears your eschatological humiliation, you will be humiliated eschatologically. If you cannot identify with this one pierced, bloodied, mock-garbed, beaten, you will be beaten, disrobed, tormented eschatologically. If you cannot stand in him at the midpoint of of the downward spiraling parabola, the center point of his degradation and humiliation, he cannot stand with you at any point. At any point in your ambition, your exploitation, your self-satisfaction, your self-glamorization. If it is all about you, it is not at all about him. Not at all. About this king and his glory, his glorious humiliation. By his scourging, you are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. Verse 4 of chapter 19 contains the presentation of the king. We are now spiraling upward toward the crucifixion, the crucifixion, the mirror of the scourging. The change frame device brings our camera and protagonists to the outside, from inside the hall of humiliation, mockery, and ridicule, to outside the praetorium and bloodlust, feeding frenzy. We notice at first the parallels with scene three chapter 18 verses 38 to 40 on the downward and upward side of the scourging in scene 3 and scene 5 of John's narrative drama the following structural similarities i find no guilt in him 1838 i find no guilt in him 196 the jews cried out saying 1840 the chief priests and officers cried out saying 196 the mob demands a victim. Barabbas, 1840. The presentation of the man with no name. Eche homo. Behold the man, 195. Pilate's ruse backfires. The burlesque figure is rejected by the mob with the cries, Crucify, crucify. Unruly, increasingly vicious The crowd checks every attempt by Pilate to release Jesus. And with every trump of the mob over Pilate, the mob becomes power. The mob becomes authority. The mob becomes pressure group. They essay to overstep their newfound power. When they demand the death penalty, scoffer Pilate scoffs at them one last time, Take him yourselves and crucify him, verse 6. Scoffing, Pilate still believes he holds the ultimate trump card. So he ridicules the bloodlust of the crowd. Pilate believes he has finally stalemated the Jews. But true to this tete-a-tete, every time Pilate says check, the Jews avoid checkmate. And the Jews, they checkmate Pilate, verse 7. Verse 7 is tantamount to a new charge. A new charge in the trials of Jesus. Not merely a malefactor. Not merely a royal claimant. Not merely a comic figure. He made himself out to be the Son of God. Pilate is is forced back inside. Verse 9. Pilate is forced back inside to interrogate Jesus anew. Scene 6. 19, verses 9 to 11, and the omnipresent interrogative again. 19:7 convenes with a new trial of Jesus, with a new charge against Jesus, with a Pilate who is afraid, verse, uh, verse 8. Pilate afraid. Back inside, quaking. Why? Why is Pilate afraid? Is he fearful of the entrapment which has been sprung on him? Is he fearful of the Jews themselves? Probably not. A ruthless politician such as Pontius Pilate is never trapped by what he regards as a race of slaves. He's always got the army. Matthew twenty-seven nineteen tells us, that Pilate's wife warned him against proceeding with Jesus. She had had a bad dream about Jesus and urged her husband not to have anything to do with him. I believe the Apostle John links Pilate's fear to the statement about Jesus' claim to be the Son of God on purpose. In this Christocentric gospel full of affirmation of the divine Sonship of Christ, are we surprised that pagan superstitious Pilate becomes afraid at the revelation of the numinous title? A son of the gods. A son of the gods. Pilate was accustomed to that notion. Augustus Caesar had been regarded as a son of the divine. Pilate's own liege lord, Tiberius Caesar, claimed to be a son of the divine Augustus, a divi filius. Son of the divinity, is Pilate in the presence of a competitor, one who challenges his pagan Caesarolatry, one who disturbs the hegemony of God like Caesar on the Tiber? His fear drives Pilate back inside. Scene 6, verses 9 to 11. Back inside to the presence of the person who claims to be son of God. Oh, John's irony is too much. It is too much. The Jews place Christ's favorite Johannine self-designation of Jesus upon him. They call him son of God. And Pilate, Pilate rushes inside to an audience with the son of God. Jew and Gentile alike, as it were, compelled to acknowledge Jesus as who He claims to be, Son of God. No, they do not credit that title, that self-designation, but it appears on their lips. It is entertained in their minds. They are brought face to face with the Divine Son, the eschatological Son, and in His presence they are afraid, they are deathly afraid, and so they must put to death the source of their fears. Or in finally confessing it, they will go to death, though they are forced to their knees to say it. Scene six, like scene two, is dominated by questions. Pilate, in character, apropos verses 33 to 38a of chapter 18, interrogates Jesus. Where are you from? You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? On the question about origin, verse 9, Jesus is silent. Has he not already answered that question? Not from here, chapter 18, verse 36, not from this world. From outside this world, I have come into this world. Chapter 18, verse 37. Jesus is silent on the question of origin. I have already told you, as even the Jews have reported. I am God the Son from God the Father. That is where I am from. The discussion of authority, exousia in the Greek. The discussion of authority elicits a different response. Power. Authority. This is giddy stuff. This is heady stuff. Pilate claims the ultimate terror. I have the keys of life and death, he says. And Jesus trumps him. On this matter, Jesus is not silent. To every power broker, to every political manipulator, to every cruel perpetrator of injustice, Human injustice. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says, You have no authority. You have no power. You have no political clout except it is permitted to you from above. You are the vessel of heaven, Pilate, says Jesus. You are controlled from above, even by me who has come down from above. Your abuse, your misuse of your power, your authority, your inhuman, inhumane, unjust use of your power is sin. It is sin, Pilate, and you will answer for it as all abusers, all power brokers, all political maneuverers, all manipulators will answer for their sin, especially when they put their hand against my own, my beloved sons and daughters, when they put their tyrannical, despotic, Vicious hand against my sheep, they put their hand against me, and I will bring them to my court. And what they sow, they shall also reap. I shall require it of them at their abusive, despotic, unjust, inhumane uncompassionate hands even as I will require it at your hand Pontius Pilate for this scene Pilate this present scene Pontius Pilate is the last judgment anticipated you think you stand in judgment of me no Pilate I stand here in judgment of you My from above arena stands here in judgment of you. My authority exceeds, supersedes your authority. You are permitted to be unjust. You are permitted to be inhumane. You are permitted to be abusive, tyrannical, uncharitable, but your sin is great. And I will require it on that day when you stand in the eschatological assize. When you acknowledge that my authority, my power, my holy, just, good, loving, tender, humane, liberating power was something you despised. And punches Pilate. Fearful punches Pilate. Pilate begins to understand that he is trapped. He is trapped in a drama in which all his political skill, all his pragmatic ability, all his alleged authority has been countered, annulled, zeroed. He has been checked and counter checked at every turn. There is something fearful about this peasant. Indeed, There is something fearful about this peasant. I think he is in control. Back outside goes Pilate, chapter 19, verse 12, to the Jews. With last-ditch efforts to release Jesus. This seventh and final scene in the trials of Jesus begins with an effort by Pilate to release Jesus from death, verse 12, and ends with Pilate releasing Jesus to death, verse 16. And inside this scene bracketed by a reverse irony, multiple additional ironies abound. Gabbatha, Golgotha, hour of the Passover, Passover. Hour of the eschatological Passover, the Lord God as king, the Lord Caesar as king. Many commentators have noted the great Hallel from the Passover Haggadah, which would be recited or sung at the approaching Passover feast. It reads, and was recited, sung, rehearsed corporately, quote, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Beside thee we have no king, redeemer, or savior. No liberator, deliverer, provider. None who takes pity in every time of distress or trouble. We have no king but thee. Unquote. John nineteen fifteen. We have no king but Caesar. What hypocrisy. What abject, blasphemous, diabolic hypocrisy. But that is what politicians do, even though they wear the garb of Christianity. Israel displaces itself. Israel disenfranchises itself. Israel apostatizes itself in the face of the liturgy of her protological liberation, her protological paschal emancipation. She refuses the eschatological liberation, the eschatological paschal emancipation. No king but Caesar. No exodus, but the exodus of continuing slavery to the kings and the politicians of this world. Israel makes friends with Caesar. Notice the charge against Pilate, verse 12. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Pilate had to have shuddered. He had to have shuddered when those words were hurled at him. Pontius Pilate knew all too well the importance of friendship with Caesar. Tiberius Caesar, the reigning Caesar, had appointed Pontius Pilate governor of Judea. Paranoid Tiberius Caesar, at the suggestion of the commander of the Praetorian Guard, Lucius Aelius Sejanus had appointed Pontius Pilate governor of Judea in the year 26 A.D. And Pilate had weathered one near-Jewish riot uprising when he foolishly brought golden shields with the image of the emperor on them into Jerusalem. Tiberius instructed the foolhardy Pilate to remove those shields, so as not to offend the Jews and cause further riots, but Pilate had been put on notice. One more false step, Pilate, one more Jewish uprising, Pilate, and you will not be the friend of Caesar. Political Pontius Pilate surely shuddered. He surely shuddered when the Jewish mob threw that charge up in his face. For Sejanus, his benefactor. Sejanus, his promoter. Sejanus, the friend of Caesar, was recently dead. Executed for conspiracy by the divine Tiberius. Executed from afar. Tiberius on the Isle of Capri. Sejanus in the city of the Seven Hills. In 31 A.D., Pilate's friend, Caesar's once-upon-a-time friend in 31 A.D., Sajanus was executed and Pontius Pilate wanted no hint of scandal. No, not even a whiff. No suggestion of disloyalty to the mad emperor of the world. No friend of Caesar, double shutter. So he delivered Jesus up to be crucified. John 19.15 is the end of theocratic Israel. The end of Israel's theocracy is ratified by the destruction of Jerusalem by King Caesar in 70 A.D. The repudiation of King Yahweh results in self-malediction. The self-malediction and transfer of suzerain no king but Caesar, then God gives you up to your new king. There is a displacement, replacement motif in John's Gospel and it comes to its climax here in chapter 19, verse 15. Not Jacob's ladder, but the Son of Man upon whom the angels ascend and descend. Chapter 1, verse 51. Not Jewish ritual purification water, but wine, wine of the new age of the gospel of Jesus, chapter 2 verse 6. Not this Herodian temple, but the living temple, the eschatological temple, my resurrection body temple, chapter 2 verse 19. Not this Samaritan well, but the water which flows eternally from me, chapter 4 verse 14. Not the manna in the wilderness, but the bread which comes down out of heaven, chapter 6 verse 33. Not the menorahs of the Feast of Tabernacles, but the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 12. Not the false shepherds, but the good and eschatological shepherd of the sheep. Chapter 10, verse 14. Now, not the King Yahweh, but the King Caesar. Judaism is displaced. And Judaism is replaced. With Jesus, the Son of God. With the kingdom He brings. With the wonderful fullness He brings the fullness of the times, the fullness of God with us. As my late brother Charlie Denison said, since Jesus came, nothing's the same. Since Jesus came, nothing's the same. Not even for displaced, replaced Israel. The eschatological shift occurs In John 19.15, the old Israel is displaced, replaced by the new Israel. Jesus stands as the prototypical new Israel, for he is the eschatological Israel of God. And from his passion, his crucifixion, the old Israel dies and passes away. And from his vindication, his resurrection... The new Israel is made alive and is raised up together with him. This eschatological shift, this defining moment in history, this turning point of the ages defines even us. Christ's kingdom or Caesar's? The kingdom not of this world or the kingdoms driven by this world? The arena of heaven and eternity, or the arena of earth and transiency. You are inverted, invited by this passage to identify with the shift, the eschatological shift. Will you yet remain in the world which passes away? For where is Caesar now? Who, son of a Caesar sits on a throne here on terra firma? whose son rules the nations divi phileos all the nations of the cosmos whose son rules all the nations now and forevermore and if you say yes to that shift if you say yes to that shift will you still behave like you have not been shifted to the world to come will you still behave like you have not been shifted to the kingdom not from here the kingdom not of this world? Will you? Do you? Do you claim the mind of heaven but behave like the mobs of the world? Do you profess with your mouth the king of heaven but confess by your life the kingdom of this world? The eschatological shift is before you in this text. Will you stand with the rejected, with the despised, with the humiliated son of God or will you stand with Pilate? Political manipulator, pilot, or the power broker crowd, the vocal majority who reject the true king and the way of suffering. And now we go, we go to Golgotha. The arrest and trial of Jesus is ended at Gabbatha. The life of Jesus will end at Golgotha. From the place called the pavement to the place of the skull. From the place of judgment to the place of execution. And from Gabbatha to Golgotha, the center is Jesus. No, Simon of Cyrene in the fourth gospel. Jesus shoulders his cross and bears it to Calvary, verse 17. The crucifixion of Jesus, Christocentric. Two others crucified with him, Jesus in between, verse 18. Jesus centered between Two others, Jesus on his cross, central to John's crucifixion narrative. John's crucifixion narrative, exegetical of his entire gospel, from verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 25 of chapter 21, Jesus at the center. Jesus beckons you to place him at the center. John places Jesus at the center of his story, even his story of Christ's crucifixion, so that you may place Jesus at the center of your story. The structure of verses 17 to 42 is variously analyzed. Your handouts contain several suggestions on the fourth, fifth, and sixth sheets. My current personal preference is the final one that is the last one on the sixth sheet where we have the lineup of uh, blank spaces You will notice that that is a concentric parallelism, chiastically centered and bracketed by an inclusio. Concentric parallelism, you see the B, C, D, B prime, C prime, D prime pattern, chiastic center centering on E, verses 28 to 30, the death expiration of Jesus. The inclusio bracket, elevation, delevation paradigm. Jesus put up on the cross, verses 17 to 19. Jesus taken down from the cross, verses 38 to 42. Crucifixion was a brutal, ugly means of execution. There is nothing, absolutely nothing humane about crucifixion. The traditional representation of the crucified victim with nails through the hands and feet has been questioned as a result of the recent discovery of an ankle bone affixed to a fragment of wood. This discovery dates from 1968 and has caused some scholars to suggest that the feet of the victim were spiked to the upright of the cross by nails through the ankles and you can see two illustrations of that in your handouts this possibility that in fact the victim was nailed through the ankles may add more than metaphorical meaning to Genesis 3:15 where the serpent will bruise the seed of the woman on the heel in addition to the revised conception of the position of the crucified There has also been a recent debate over the manner in which crucifixion kills the victim. Many of you are familiar with the asphyxiation paradigm, which alleges that as the victim tires, his weight collapses the diaphragm so as to reduce breathing. On this theory, most victims of crucifixion allegedly suffocated to death because they were eventually unable to boost their weight off the thorax so as to take a breath. Newer experiments suggest, in fact, that a person could survive for many days catching short enough gasps of air to hang on even with weakened legs. Well, if not asphyxiation, how did death on the cross occur? The most reasonable suggestion is shock. Shock is physiological trauma caused by loss of fluids and hemorrhaging into tissues. The scourging of the victim, even whipping and flogging him throughout the ordeal, was traumatic and induced shock in the victim's system. The brutalization of the one crucified was intentional. After all, crucifixion was the punishment reserved for criminals criminals, and slaves. Now, perhaps the finest published treatment of crucifixion in the ancient world is this little book by Martin Hengel titled simply Crucifixion. It is a thorough review of all of the Greek and Roman documents which reflect upon this method of execution. And it brings to bear a full range of the data from the contemporary and related documents which draw the graphic character and the horror of crucifixion. This is not pleasant reading, but it is essential reading if you want to understand what your Lord went through. It is not a perfect book. Hengel has some higher critical inclinations. That is, he is a high critical liberal. But it is a brilliant piece of research. And you can sift out the liberalism and throw it aside and be left with a very graphic portrait of what was described in the records in first century and before of crucifixion. So if you want... A thorough investigation of that topic, Hengel's book is unsurpassed. In addition to flogging and beating, the victim was stripped naked, publicly denuded, in order to shame him with open exposure to hundreds of eyes. All dignity was removed. When the naked form of the victim was tacked up on the tree and elevated for all to see, he was exposed to open ridicule. The death march to the place of execution was a carnival. Hundreds of persons lined the streets to jeer, spit, buffet and stone the victim on his way to death. Like the gladiator death throes, Roman crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Breaking of the legs, verses 32 and 33, was a further inducement of trauma and pain, excruciating pain. Yet even death did not end the shame and humiliation. Quite often the body of the victim was left on the cross to be eaten by raptors and jackals. Even proper burial was denied victims of crucifixion. In the bone that was hooked to the piece of wood, the nail struck a knot, bent around the knot, and rather than pull the nails out, they simply cut the victim's ankle off and threw it away with the ankle attached by nail to the sliver of wood. And that's the reason we have the suggestion that they were nailed through the ankles, either side saddle or straddled, but they were not nailed through the front of the feet. We now have an archaeological artifact which demonstrates a possible explanation of the economy of Roman nails. It only takes one through the ankles. You save a nail. Crucifixion, brutal, obscene, shameful, painful. Crucifixion for criminals. Criminals. Jesus becomes a criminal. The contradiction of sinners pro nobis for us. Jesus became a criminal, a vicarious criminal for you. He is regarded as what he is not. A criminal malefactor so that what you are, a criminal malefactor, so that what you are may be transferred to him. The just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. O, all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but only me was ever grief like mine. Lo, here I hang, charged with a world of sin, the greater world of the two, for that came in by words, but this by sorrow I must win was ever grief like mine. Betwixt two thieves I spend my utmost breath. And he that for some robbery suffereth, alas, what have I stolen from you? Death! was ever grief like mine. George Herbert. We'll stop there for this evening. Resume next week. And I'll take a few questions. David. Um, The the question is, in the duplicate affirmation of Christ's I am and the duplicate denial of uh, Peter, I am not, is there a link to John the Baptist's denial that I am not the Messiah? Uh, No, I do not think so. I think that the mirror is uh, specifically between Peter and Christ in this scene, in this instance. Any other questions or comments? Yes, David. It would seem to me that at the arrest scene where the Lord says, Knew with whom they were dealing. Now, is that a statement or a question, David? <laughs> the comment is that it would seem that when Jesus utters the I am and the resting crowd falls at his feet, that they knew with whom they were dealing. Uh, let me put it this way they should have known with whom they were dealing but the fact that they bind him and carry him off, er greift und bindet ihn, er und bindet ihn, seize him and bind him, uh, as Beethoven writes there. Uh, <clears throat> no, they, uh, it, it didn't impact them any more than it impacted Judas Iscariot. Though a man rise from the dead, they will not believe it. Yes, Margaret? Nice question. The question is, what about Pontius Pilate? Did he remain in Judea as governor? No, he was recalled about four years later, and then he disappears from the historical record. That disappearance in and of itself is not necessarily nefarious. That doesn't mean he was necessarily executed. Uh, you know, he may just simply have dropped out of sight. But he does—he is called back to Rome. David, another. The, the statement is, the question is, with the uh, arresting mob following at the feet of Jesus in the I am, is there a link back to the garden uh, <clears throat> with the uh, 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 trampling on the feet of uh, <clears throat> uh, bruising the head of the serpent? And, uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, once again, I, I, I don't think so. I think that's a reach. Uh, I don't deny the uh, exercise of sovereignty in both cases, but I think, uh, I think I need more to make a direct connection. Yes, Dan. In uh, 19 verse 11, Jesus says that uh, you can have no power at all against me except to you from above. Then he says, "Therefore, he that delivered me the unto thee hath the greater sin." Um, to whom is he referring? He's referring. Uh, the que- the question is about chapter 19 verse 11. Uh, the authority has been given uh, has been given from above, but the one who delivered up Jesus has greater has the greater sin. Uh, He's referring specifically to Judas Iscariot, in my opinion, though Judas becomes the embodiment of the hostility to Christ. In that sense, he's a kind of representative antichrist. But I think Jesus is specifying him as the the embodiment or uh, representation of that hostile spirit. So this is a last judgment confrontation. For at the last judgment, as I alluded uh, in the lecture, at the last judgment they are going to acknowledge the authority of the Son of God, and they are going to bow the knee to the Son of God, and they are going to confess that He is the Son of God. But they will go into hell hating what they have had to confess and bow. It's like Judas Iscariot. You know what 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 could have overpowered any resistance to Judas's hesitation, but this display of omnipotence in the garden. And, you know, it's, it's, he will not. He just simply will not. He hates this goodness that is in front of him. You all know people that just hate and despise goodness. They hate righteousness. They hate any kind of virtue. They would do everything and anything in order to confound it. Uh, you know, we come across these people. These are inveterately wicked people. Uh, Judas Iscariot is an inveterately wicked man. This is not a hapless uh, you know disappointed uh, an unfortunate uh, bystander who gets uh, you know snagged into the web of uh, of gentle jesus no he is he is a, an intentional he, he, out of the heart comes his desire to murder his master in our culture it's very difficult for us to judge the heart by the deed you see we 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 judge the environment by the deed. We don't judge the heart by the deed. We really don't think these people have wicked thoughts. I mean, people fly airplanes into Twin Towers and kill three thousand people, and we don't think they have evil and wicked hearts. Yeah. That, that is denial. That is just absolute denial of the depravity of human wickedness. Anyway, um, all these attempts by novelists to redeem Judas... Uh, all these theologians attempting to say that, you know, he was just uh, trapped, trapped in his own uh, 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 disappointment. No. Okay, well, we'll finish next week and we'll go on.